Welcome to Actual Advisor Value, the behind the scenes look at how fiduciary financial advisors enrich baby boomers' lives. I'm Taylor DeMars, a third generation financial advisor and certified financial planner, making a positive impact on hundreds of retirees. Join me to hear short, specific stories of how I address the issues baby boomers like you face and consider could this help me or someone I know? Today I met with a wonderful lady, her name is Lucy, and she brought up some interesting points that I felt were applicable to share with you folks today, especially as they relate to finances and family, two areas that generally don't mix super well with most people, but with proper planning, I think they can. And especially I want to make this relate to how the financial advisor, myself in this case, can be placed as the bad guy, the fall guy, the scapegoat, in order to help the client out in the end. So Lucy came to meet with me today. Unfortunately, she's recently widowed. Her husband passed away about seven months ago. She's very conscientious of how she spends her money. She's very on top of living within her means. And as most clients of her age, she's very worried about outliving her money and as well as trying to balance the complexity of aging gracefully and maintaining good relationships with her children, her two daughters in this case. And one of the main concerns that comes up with clients is they want to make sure that they're not a burden to those they leave behind. They don't want to be a burden to their children, to those that survive them, to those who are the executor to their estate. So we were walking through some of the implications of each of her different assets and accounts and elements of her net worth. And so she could understand what happens upon her passing and how she could minimize probate in this case as she was concerned about the complexity and time and hassle and expense that is commonly associated with probate. One of her assets that came up was her bank account, and she has her niece, who is an attorney, as her executor, and she thought, why don't I add her as the executor to my account? Because won't that avoid probate and make it easier for her to settle my estate? I thought I'd zoom in on this point a little more because it's a really common one among many of our baby boomer clients and speak to, okay, what are some of the pros? What are some of the cons? I'm not saying, again, it's a universally right or wrong decision, but as long as you're aware of the implications of both sides of the coin, then you can make a better decision. The primary advantage, as we've already stated, is the, of being able to avoid probate. And probate, as a sidestep, is just the process that's involved in settling one's estate that certain assets or accounts have to be brought to the state, to the judge, and the executor has to prove, in essence, that they have either legal title to the account or ability to settle the account on behalf of the deceased, according to the trust and or will. And that can add time, hassle, headache, depending on the complexity of the estate. But many people are concerned about trying to make it as simple as possible for their survivors and not be a burden to them. The idea, therefore, that came up today applicable to Lucy and other VB boomers is, okay, should I add someone else to my bank account? Therefore, when I pass away, the account doesn't get frozen because there's still a living member associated with that account, and thereby it doesn't have to go through the probate process. This doesn't have to do with just when one passes away. It also has to do with what comes right before that, which is usually incapacitation. When one has either dementia or isn't mentally cognizant and needs some assistance and that can get pretty tricky to get in place if there's not already a power of attorney in place and or someone that's a joint owner on the account. 
So those are some of the, the advantages associated with having a joint owner. Some of the major cons that I highlighted to Lucy today includes, well, it's a huge risk. Personally, I wouldn't add someone as a joint owner on my bank account unless I trusted them with my life, especially at the baby boomer stage when you have your life savings or a portion of your life savings in there and you're essentially giving full access to another person as if it's their own money to spend. And that can make a lot of people concerned, right? Sometimes some people will give them better peace of mind, but others it makes them concerned that what if my son, daughter, family member, friend, niece, nephew, etc., takes advantage of me or pressures or blackmails me in a way to do something that they would want rather than I would want because they have influence over my bank account. And that was something that really resonated with Lucy today because although she doesn't trust her two daughters, unfortunately enough to add them to the bank account, she does trust her niece, who's her executor, is an attorney. But at the same time, she's also concerned because her niece is trying to pressure her to move across the country as she ages. And I'm sure her niece means well to keep her living closer to her and give her a better standard of living, but that's simply just not what Lucy wants, and that's completely fine. Lucy's concern is, what if I add her to my bank account, although I trust her with that money, is she going to try and coerce me in some way to move across the country because she can spend my money to get me over there because she knows I have enough money to afford it? And the list goes on and fill in the blank of whatever may be applicable to you that someone may be able to take advantage of you. But that was really the largest con that resonated with Lucy today. Another con that could be associated with that is, as a joint owner, if it's originally your funds, you add someone to the account, if they take out a substantial amount of money from the account, we could be worried about gift taxes in this case. could be worried about giving money as a gift, which in this year of 2023, you can only gift $17,000 to each recipient per year. And in an extreme case where someone pulls out that much money or more for the other person's benefit who is not the original owner on the account, then you'd have either need to file Form 709 on your tax return, or you would need to pay the associated gift tax, neither of which most people I come across are willing to do. And when it comes to being an objective third party in this situation, I'm unemotionally attached to Lucy's family members. So I have a pretty non-biased view to say, don't do it if you have any hesitation because she feels a bit of pressure from her niece to add her to the bank account. But I get to volunteer my hand and say, hey, <laughs> make me the bad guy. Just say, ah, oh, my financial advisor says I can't. Or he's really telling me it's not a great idea. And you can leave it at that. You don't have to explain all the reasons that I give in the appointment or in the conversation. Because the more information you give, the other party is really trying to argue with you. They're going to find ways to use that against you or twist your words. But if you simply say... I'm sorry, I, I really would like to, but my financial advisor is strongly advising me I, I shouldn't, and he's just being a pain. However you want to throw me under the bus, I really don't care, because I get to be the fall person or the scapegoat to say, yeah, I am raising my hand and saying this isn't the best idea, if I really truly feel it is, because sometimes Lucy herself isn't comfortable with confrontation and willing to explain all the reasons why she isn't willing to add her niece to the bank account, even though it would make probate process easier, even though it would help out in the case of incapacitation or any other advantages that could be thrown out there. She simply just at the end of our conversation, weighing the pros and cons, didn't feel comfortable with it. 
And if it gets to push to shove with a family member to explain away a decision that the other family member isn't comfortable with, throw me under that bus. I'll give you another example that came up today with family and finances with Lucy that I feel also extends to many other baby boomers was she wanted to help her daughter, financially speaking. Her daughter is going through a gallbladder surgery here very soon and is really worried about the expenses associated with that surgery, how much insurance may or may not cover, and, and how that could impact her daughter's financial stability. Frankly, I don't know much about her daughter's situation, but I do know that Lucy is our client. And I, as a fiduciary, feel my responsibility is to defend Lucy's financial stability. Now, don't get me wrong, I completely understand the feelings of a parent to help and support their child. As a parent myself, although I don't have adult children, my two-year-old is the cutest boy in the whole wide world. And when he comes up to me because he found a snack in the pantry, or he knows there's some cookies on the counter and asks me, please, daddy, can I have a cookie? What am I supposed to say? Most of the time, I give in. But many times, I'm, I'm the proper parent and I say, maybe after dinner, or not right now, please. And I feel that I only say that because I'm trying to do what's in my son's best interest. I'm trying to encourage him not to eat unhealthy snacks at, at random parts of the day or to eat dessert before his dinner. And I think that same principle applies to taking care of adult children. And it's not my own random opinion because it's easier said than done. I really like this book that I read called Millionaire Next Door. It was written by William Danko and Thomas Stanley. And a lot of great takeaways from the book. I'll include a link to the book in the show notes below. One of the key points that they emphasized was trying to make your children as independently wealthy as possible. And in fact, they called the, they define helping your children substantially as economic outpatient care. Just a play on words to say, giving them too much money. And these authors surveyed a substantial number of millionaires to try and find trends and takeaways of what makes Americans wealthy. And they found that those parents, and the key takeaways were those parents who provide economic outpatient care have less wealth than those who do not. And the more economic outpatient care adult children receive, the less wealth they accumulate. And in fact, the other interesting statistic that they took away was more than two-thirds of the millionaires who were surveyed for the book received no economic gifts, excluding college tuition. So as I zoom out and apply that to, again, our baby boomer clients, there's nothing stronger than the love of a mother or of a parent in general. And it's hard to argue with anyone trying to really help their children. From the one standpoint, I say, yes, we want to help them, but we have to prioritize your financial stability first. No one, especially hopefully your children, wants to see your family, your finances suffer through retirement because you took too much, because you gave them too much help. And two, just from a statistical standpoint, it, it's proven that the more, it's proven that those ch adult children, let me just try it again. It's proven that the adult children who are economically dependent on their parents are less wealthy in the long run. Of course, I'm not saying that there's a hard and fast rule to say where parents shouldn't lend money to their adult children. But if you're going to venture down that road, there are a few things that I think are worth considering that I bring up with clients. The first of which is communication is key. 
and will dispel hurt feelings in the family in the short term, but more especially in the long term. So how do we do that? We got to put it in writing. As much as we trust one another and want to settle on a handshake, I fail to find a single client that has not put it in handwriting and either has not felt taken advantage of or had done a disservice to themselves financially because they haven't kept good notes. And I think all that needs to be done is, again, put the terms in writing, determine what the amount is being loaned, what's the payment period, and what's an appropriate interest rate along with other elements. But those are the key elements in a handshake deal. There are actually lots of free resources that will help you structure this type of intra-family loan. I'll include a link on the show notes below that will allow you to input these elements and it will print out an entire loan schedule over however many months you're structuring the loan so that both you and the adult children understand exactly how much they're supposed to pay, how much the interest is being made on each payment and the timeline of the loan. And if they're ahead or behind on payments, you can recalculate and recalibrate it. So you're all on the same page. I struggle with clients who want to believe that a handshake deal will be sufficient and that whatever was agreed on however many years ago will be remembered forever. And maybe it is. Give them the benefit of the doubt, both to the adult children and the the loaner. But the two risks are, one, the parent gets hurt because they feel that the child is not keeping up with their payments. And two, even if they are okay, in air quotes, with them not keeping up with their payments, in the end, I feel that the client is being taken advantage of, whether they say they're okay with it or not. And that's a concern in my perspective. And I certainly want to see the client's assets being taken care of. In an even more extreme case of a parent who is not so strict on the loan terms is we don't want to get in danger of offending the IRS because if the loan is substantial enough and the terms are lackadaisical enough, we could be worrying about gift taxes and gift implications. As I mentioned before, in 2023, the gift limit to a single recipient per year is $17,000. Now, if the IRS feels your loan is big enough and you're encroaching on those limits, then you might be worried about not filing a gift tax form or paying gift taxes on what was supposed to be a loan to your child. In fact, as I was doing more research about this topic for today's episode, I found that there are actually minimum interest rate limits that the IRS recommends depending on the type of loan. And I'll include a link to the the resource online that you can find what limits are applicable in your case. But for example, the IRS sets certain interest rate limits that one must not go below if you're doing a personal loan. Why? Does it make sense to loan somebody $100,000 at 0.005% interest? Sounds like a gift to me. So in order to prevent that, the IRS has minimum interest rate limits depending on the month. They update it monthly, but they land around the low 4%. I wouldn't feel as a parent that I was taking advantage of my children for charging an interest rate because just for the sake of loaning money to them in the first place, you're giving them a lot less hassle than if they had to go through the underwriting process to take out a personal loan from the bank or another entity. Essentially, the underwriting is your trust to them and vice versa, and that saves them a few thousand dollars at a minimum. So charging an interest rate is not only an appropriate but necessary element of an intrafamily loan. Perhaps I'm getting a little in the weeds here, but it comes up often enough with our baby boomer clients that I feel it's worth touching on 
significantly what the pros and cons are and risks to family and finances when it comes to loans. And again, as my other story with Lucy, I completely volunteered myself to Lucy to say, if you need to throw me under the bus to say, sorry, daughter, I can't loan you this money, blame me. Encourage her to try and find ways to be financially stable. Encourage her to work through the insurance company and get them to negotiate the bill down. Something I've had to do personally over the past year with our family's medical bills. And if it's hard to have that conversation, again, make me the the scapegoat and say, I'm sorry, my financial advisor tells me I can't right now. They tell me I can't afford it, and if I do, then I risk my financial stability. And hopefully that alone will dissuade an adult child from pressuring the, the point further. But even if they do, then I'm completely open. I imagine many financial advisors are open to leaving their phone number for the adult children to reach out and talk to me about it because I'm not going to budge. But if I can be the bad guy and, and, and be the one that someone vents to or is upset with rather than the client themselves, then hopefully that's a win for the client. And the final point I'll say on that is, again, many times it takes an unbiased third-party opinion like a financial advisor to tell a client, I feel that giving this amount of money to an adult child who will most likely not pay it back will put your financial stability in jeopardy. And I don't recommend that you do it. The lines can get really blurred when it comes to family and finances because, again, the power of a parent, the love of a parent is very strong. And unless someone who has no emotional connection to the situation is involved, it can be hard to convince yourself whether you're doing the right thing for yourself and or for the family. So coming full circle, I felt my conversation with Lucy was one that was helpful to her. I felt it was one that's applicable to many baby boomer clients as they try and navigate the waters of family and finances, especially when it comes to do I add them to my personal financial accounts and do I loan them money? There's different answers for every situation. So many times seeking out a professional opinion can help you not only get a third party opinion, but have someone to blame if the appropriate decision is not going to jive well with a family member. Thanks again for listening. Feel free to share this episode with someone who you feel might be weighing a similar situation when it comes to family and finances. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, and the experiences shared in this podcast may not be representative of all clients, as each individual's situation is unique. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only, and should not be relied upon for making financial, legal, tax, or investment decisions.